Hello and welcome to Ono, oh Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on French science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. Normally, I'd have Carrie Poppy here as well, but she is celebrating her anniversary with Mr. Drew Spears this weekend. And instead, I've brought a fantastic guest that I'm very excited to have here, Mick West, the creator of Metabunk.org and also ContrailScience.com. Uh, also the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect, and also host of the podcast Tales from the Rabbit Hole. We're going to talk in the first half specifically about recent UFO news and then move generally into conspiracy theory and effective communication. Mick, welcome to Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Big fan of your work, and I feel... Lately, I've been having to direct people constantly to Metabunk mm -hmm. and to your YouTube channel titled Mick West. Whenever I get questions about recent UFO sightings, UAPs, they've been in the news a lot. I suppose first, maybe we should just address that issue. UFO has been the term of art for decades, and now people are starting to use this term UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. Do you feel that that is a helpful term? Does it clarify anything? Does it remove the object portion of the equation? Well, that's a good question. The UAP term actually came from the British uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, I think oh. probably like maybe 10 years ago or more. And they started using the term UAP kind of internally in government proceedings just for kind of more official sounding type things. And I think part of the whole thing is that there's a stigma attached with the term UFO. Yeah, a sensational thing. Yeah, UFO sounds like flying saucer. Right. So if you're talking about UFOs, people automatically jump straight away to like Hollywood aliens and things like that and you know, close encounters of the third kind. Uh, so people prefer to use the term UAP because it's, it's a more serious term. And this is something I've seen in, in other topics as well. People who are enthusiasts about a particular non-mainstream topic, a fringe topic, like to change the terminology if they feel like that terminology has become kind of toxic. As there's a creep of connotation that makes it seem yeah. a little less serious. Yeah, there's the chemtrails people. Now, they do not want you to use the word chemtrails. Ah, that's become derogatory. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of like a tinfoil hat type thing. And so they will say geoengineering or covert climate control or something like that, trying to okay. make it sound more scientific-y. And we've got <laughs> the same type of thing with the UFO folks. They get quite upset, if you, especially if you use the, the word aliens in the conversation, when really most of them do actually think it's aliens, but they don't like to use the term aliens because they know that people will find that a bit ridiculous. And so they, they try to phrase things in a different way. This reminds me in another domain of kind of the move from creationism to intelligent design. Let's not talk about God. Yes, we <laughs> do hope that this will lead you towards God, but uh, we don't need to talk about that right now. This is very intellectual. Yeah, it's very, it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a PR campaign, essentially. And it's, it's like, you know, we see in, in, in politics as well, you know, you, you label something like Operation Enduring Freedom, 
when you're really, I don't know, subjugating another country. It's, <laughs> right. Uh, so it's, <laughs> what, what, it's you, don't, you don't like freedom? You don't want it to endure? <laughs> What's the matter yeah, with you? Yeah, so putting a, a spin on something by giving it a name. And that's, that's what UAP is doing. It, it is a little handier in a way because it encompasses phenomena, yes. uh, which are things like lights in the sky, which could be real things like, say, ball lightning, which is a a thing that might be real. And mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's some science you know, strongly suggesting that ball lightning is a real thing. But a lot of the sightings of ball lightning are very kind of anecdotal. And so it's hard to get good data on it. But that might be what some of the UFOs sightings actually are. Some kind of atmospheric phenomenon like ball lightning or or just you know, maybe a funny shaped cloud or something like that. So right. you couldn't that wouldn't be an unidentified flying object. That's just something, an aerial phenomena of some sort. And that's something I think that we would often point out with the term UFO is, well, first of all, it's unidentified. Let's agree on that before mm -hmm. making that leap. But also saying that it's flying, saying that it's an object precludes certain things like lens effects, for example. Yes. Um, so at least aerial, I think, gets us a little closer yeah. to not making a claim with the term itself. Well, now that we know what we're talking about, there's been this proliferation of UAPs, let's go ahead and call them that, uh, over the past couple of years. And maybe you can help clarify a bit where these are coming from, because it seems like the government itself has been involved, even Congress, mm -hmm. in wanting to see these brought to light. But also you have these sort of independent actors who uh, have been doing as much as they can to obtain footage and publicly release it. Not all of it is recent footage. Sometimes it's a couple decades old. Can you kind of clarify that situation and, and sort of what, what is making all of these videos now come to light? Yeah, well, it really started about four years ago, I guess, in uh, late 2017, nearly 2018, so about four and a half years ago. About four years ago, 2017, December, there was a story published in the New York Times called Glowing Auras and Black Money. And right. it was about the existence of this uh, semi-secret Pentagon program for studying UAPs. And uh, it was accompanied by the release of two videos. I think one was called the FLIR video and the other one was the, the Gimbal video. And this was the, really the first time that people had seen something coming out that had some kind of official stamp on it. Like it seemed to be coming from the government. It was military footage from uh, you know, a real Navy pilot. Now, initially, the Pentagon didn't say very much about this. It didn't initially come from the Pentagon. It was released by, by the New York Times first. I have three reporters who wrote this story. It was also released by another organization called the To the Stars Academy, which uh, is yes. headed by Tom DeLong, of who Blink is, 182 fan. Uh, yes, the lead man of uh, Blink 182. So he's a, he's a rock star. Yeah. Historically, Tom has had a very strong interest in the UFO phenomena or the UAP phenomena, but I guess he would have called it UFOs back then. And he founded this academy, the To the Stars yeah. Academy. Yeah, and he founded this academy, and he kind of took on people who used to work in this program that the New York Times story was about, the ATIP program. And uh, one of these people was Luis Elizondo, who you probably have seen on TV now. He's, he's kind of the whole face of this phenomena. He's, he's kind of a guy with a little goatee, Beard, right. usually wears a, a cap. And he did formerly work at the Pentagon. It, yeah, he worked at the Pentagon, yes. What, what he actually did for the ATIP program isn't entirely clear, and he's been very cagey about you know, revealing any details about it. But he was uh, responsible for releasing this video, uh, these two videos, along with a, uh, I wouldn't say a partner in crime, but a, a partner in the endeavor called Chris Mellon 
who mm. was the assistant deputy secretary for defense for intelligence. Okay, kind of a, a long, a long <laughs> title, but you know he was he was there in government. He knew, he talked to people. He probably talked to the president at some point, and ended up working with Tom DeLonge, working for Tom DeLonge. He was one of the employees essentially, and it was responsible for getting this video out. And then kind of fast forward a little bit, what happened was uh, more videos got released. There was another video from the Navy. The Navy eventually got so many Freedom of Information Act requests and so many queries from the press about these things that they eventually said, yes, these are real things. And then later they said, they're real things. And here's the actual official files and the released versions of the video, which were essentially the same, slightly higher quality. So they wanted to kind of get ahead of all of this speculation they, they, and all these requests. They said that they... What they said they wanted to do was just clear up the questions that people were asking. Like, are the videos real? First, mm -hmm. yes, the videos are real. They were taken by Navy personnel. What what did they show? And they said that they're they're currently classed as unidentified. So they, they were saying that they they had this label unidentified applied to them. Um, but that's about all they said. Okay, they didn't uh, try to explain it. I no, assume they no. revealed some details about where they were taken, from which kinds of planes, with which yeah, types very, of equipment. No, well, very little really. I mean, they didn't even they didn't mention the type of plane or or the uh, the type of equipment. But it was fairly apparent what it was. You could tell it's this this type of camera called an Atflir thing, which is a targeting plot pod, a targeting and pod. Flir, that's forward-looking infrared. Yeah, that's that's a funny thing. Forward-looking infrared sounds very impressive, doesn't it? But yeah, um, it's just infrared. <laughs> okay, it's a camera oh, that's all, all that's calibrated. There's to two look. types of uh, infrared camera. There's a yeah. forward-looking one, and then there's a a sideways-looking one. Okay, <laughs> it's not really as simple as that. The sideways-looking one is essentially a side-scanning one. So it, it's like it's it looks at uh, you know essentially take traces across like a scanner would traces okay. across a page. It scans across through the side of the plane or whatever, or a satellite. It's usually used on satellites now for, for mapping the Earth and, and the moon and things like that. It's kind of a scanning one. And that's the one that's really complicated. Forward-looking is just, it's just, it's a camera. It's a camera pointing forward on the plane. forward and it doesn't, doesn't go sideways. Like. And I mean, I, I think it's understandable why a plane would have that, but I'm guessing it's to help just have mm -hmm. additional visualizations if there's atmospheric conditions that are blocking you know, it, the visible spectrum. It, in this case, in this case, the uh, the forward-looking infrared camera, the Atflir system, is very specifically a targeting pod, which means its its function is to get a lock on a target and then fire a missile at that target and blow it up, or fire the, the guns okay. at that target and blow it up. So it's designed so that you can find the target visually and select it and put a lock on it. Oh. Or, well, that makes sense because there's usually a reticle in the middle of the footage yeah. that we see that looks like it's being used for targeting. Yeah, and, and it's, it's very good at locking onto things and tracking them because, of course, most targets that you're going to be interested in are moving. Well, they're always moving because the plane is moving. So right. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the picture you see is always moving. So it needs to keep a track on, on the object whilst, whilst you're moving. And this is, this is something that's responsible for a lot of the, uh, the visual misperceptions about these videos. Uh, they are very super zoomed in mm. and they are tracking an object with amazing precision. It actually doesn't, it doesn't really use this, uh, you know, ball and rotate 
thing to track Nick very much. Holding up a security camera type thing that's uh, rotating, sort of like an eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. This is a pan tilt zoom camera. You see that you see them everywhere. You can just just search for PTZ or pan tilt zoom camera, and that's got two axes of rotation. There's like a long axis and then a kind of an up down axis. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually use that so much for tracking things. It's got this uh, set of internal mirrors inside the camera, and this again adds to the complication of things and the actual illusions that we have but it's really really good at tracking objects which is the thing and it it gives this amazing kind of illusion that this thing is kind of fixed in space when really it's kind of moving along relative to to you and what people miss is that any minor adjustment or movement is going to be exaggerated at those kinds of distances yeah it's a one degree field of view and uh it's, it's kind of difficult for people who don't actually have a camera that has a one degree field of view to imagine what that is but if you take your your cell phone it's perhaps the equivalent of like one or two millimeters like a mm. tenth of an inch uh, square in the middle of your cell phone, maybe even less than that, but then kind of blown up to the entire size of the screen. Kind of the equivalent of maybe making an O with your pointer finger and your thumb and holding it out at arm's reach. Yeah, it'd be less than that. that. I mean, it's kind of difficult to even describe how small it is. It's, so very it's, well, it's tiny field of view. Yeah, I suppose it's 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 about the same as uh, the moon, uh, which is about half a degree. Okay. And Mick is holding his thumb out at arm's length away from his eye. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The entire picture is the size of the moon. And then you've got this little craft in it. So like, say one of the craters on the moon is okay. the, kind of the size of the thing that you're looking at. Being filmed uh, by a plane isn't. moving at hundreds of miles per hour. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and essentially you're looking at it through a telescope that is uh, is locked on by these uh, million dollar technology. So it's it's understandable that when people look at these these videos, you can't immediately comprehend what you're looking at, and it, right. uh, it can be a little complicated to explain. Yeah, it requires uh, you often in your explanations of these bring up trigonometry and Mm -hmm. information that is on screen. Those cameras are usually capturing some kind of telemetry data that gives you something to work with. But yeah, maybe we can dig in a little bit into those first two videos, the FLIR and the gimbal. Sure. So the FLIR one, most people are going to be listening to this, uh, so it's hard to describe these, but it's kind of a white little flat shape. I don't know. It seems like many UFOs get uh, described as like tic-tac ufos but right. this seems like it sort of fits within that category and it doesn't seem to move outside of the reticle until the camera itself moves yeah uh it's an interesting video because it's filmed with mostly with an infrared camera but it's also filmed with a tv camera just a, you know, a regular black and white tv camera oh. so part of the video is in tv mode and the bits that are in tv mode the object shows up as black uh, which is kind of interesting because, you know, it's being described as this white tic-tac-shaped object. Right. And yet it shows up as a black object. And there's a perceptual uh, piece to that. When we see something as a black object, it feels like a positive shape against a negative, you know, negative background. It reads differently than white yeah. on a darker. Yeah, but, field. you know, you think like it, it is, if it is white, like a tic-tac would be, and like how they described it, why is it showing up as black? It would have to be very strongly backlit. But yeah, that aside, like uh, if you look at the object, the shape of it also isn't very regular. It kind of looks kind of like a twisted peanut shape, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a you know, figure eight almost with a little little waist in the middle and then little protrusions at the end. Yeah. And right at the start of the video, you can't actually see the shape of the object at all. All you can see is a kind of star shape, which is kind of the glare uh, from the heat 
So you, you're just seeing this, this this shape, which I think is probably like the heat from the engines of a distant plane. So I think we're looking at something that's way off in the distance and it is basically flying straight away from you. So you're looking right at the tailpipe okay. of this jet plane. And uh, I, I think you know what happens then is he switches to the TV mode. We watch that for a while. Then he switches back to the infrared mode and then we see the same thing. But now it kind of looks more like a tic-tac shape. But you can still kind of see the engines at one end. Uh, but, you know, the, the shape of it is kind of very indeterminate because it's mm -hmm. actually kind of out of focus. And you can you can see from the, the symbology on screen that it's actually in manual focus mode. And he said the, the focus level to eight. Is that right. something the pilot would control because they're interested yes. in what they're seeing? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm not sure why they would have it in manual mode, but uh, it, it does. It is in manual mode. You see the little indicator that says FOCS and then eight on the side, so you can tell it's okay. actually yeah in manual focus. As mode. opposed to the camera using the visual field to determine yeah. where the yeah, area focuses and focusing on it. Exactly, I think it would normally have some kind of autofocus or default focus that it would go to. So you know we can't really tell that much about the shape of the object because it appears to be out of focus, and also the the video itself is very low resolution. But the claims that people make about this video is that it demonstrates amazing movement and that it seems to accelerate off at the end of the video. Mm. Uh, and this is like the big claim that people made. And they, they say they've done calculations on just how fast it's accelerating. And it's something like 100 or 200 Gs, which would be vastly more than uh, humans could do. Like the the highest G-force a human can you know, survive with a trained fighter pilot is, is 10 Gs tops. With bladders to help them absorb yeah, the, the force. They, they have pressure suits and special breathing techniques and, yeah. uh, and lots of practice doing this. They can't do it for very long and they quite often pass out. If it's uh, above like 7 or 8 Gs, most people will pass out. So 200 Gs would kill you instantly, yeah. basically. It'd be like falling off uh, a 10-story building and hitting the parking lot, you know, that, that type of G-force. Okay. Uh, so obviously, if that was real, it would be huge. Yes. Yeah. Just, just uh, aside from the video for a second, just, just think about that for a moment. If there was technology out there that could do 200G maneuvers, a craft that could hover and then do a 200G maneuver, and that was actually a craft that existed... That would yes. be huge. Yeah. That would be one of the biggest developments in transportation history, if not human history. It would represent a, an entirely new form of technology. That, that kind of acceleration. We, we no idea how it works. Yeah. yeah. So many applications for something like that. Yeah. And you know, not, not just simply you know, the good uses that we would have for it, but just think of the financial disruption that this would cause. Think of the F-35 fighter program. Mm -hmm. It is a program that over its lifetime, the F-35 fighter, the new advanced fighter that's being developed and just being rolled out now, it's going to cost about $1.6 trillion over its lifetime. Wow. Like over, I think, a 30 or 40 year lifetime, expected lifetime. I remember hearing about that, reading a Tom Clancy book back in like 2000. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, it's coming any day now. Yeah. If this acceleration is possible, if a craft can do this thing and do it consistently, apparently, from what we've been seeing for, for, from these, these videos, if, people, if the claims that people make are correct, then that $1.6 trillion has Just been wasted. wasted. Yeah, And so if, if it's true, there should be a massive response from the government. Billions of dollars, like uh, Manhattan-level projects, right. Manhattan Project-level response, Absolutely. trying to figure out what's actually going on. But yeah, we see nothing. We see a little report that says inconclusive data. So I just think the fact that yeah. what people are claiming and the response that people are having is so out of whack 
it's going to have a good indication that the actual quality of the evidence really isn't there. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's always important to do, which is just to stop and think of the implications if the claim is true, how would the world be different? Because oftentimes it doesn't, like you say, match up with the response. Big if true. I think there's a book out uh, now by I think Ben Radford and some other people. Oh, excellent. But uh, big if true is is something that applies to a lot of these things. You know, if Bigfoot is real, that's pretty big. Yeah. That would be a a massive thing in uh, paleontology and uh, I guess even history. (laughs) Yeah. If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if, of course, if aliens are real. Big if true, very, very big. Absolutely. So were you able to do anything with those claims of, say, the acceleration of the object? Was there any yes. way to Yes, I was. Uh, okay. So what I noticed was a couple of things. First of all, on the top of the screen, we have an angle indicator, which shows the angle the, the camera is pointing at. And it starts out, I believe, about six degrees to the right, which means six degrees to the right of the front of the, uh, of the, the jet. So you know, fairly more or less straightforward, but just six degrees to the right. And it okay. gradually gradually changes over the course of the video, which is about, I think, 40 seconds long, maybe a minute, to be eight degrees to the left. So it just moves smoothly from from right to left. Okay. A slow pan. Yeah, the object that we're looking at is moving uh, relative to the plane from right to left at about uh, one degree every four seconds. Now, whenever something happens to the camera that makes a movement like he changes camera modes between say infrared and tv or tv and infrared or wide angle and narrow angle uh, you see the camera actually loses lock for a second because the the lock here is based on a visual thing it's like if you're in adobe after effects and you try to track a feature it it just tries to follow that one feature and that's what's going on uh here it's it's just trying to track this little thing but sometimes the video signal gets interrupted it loses track and you see the object move over to the left a bit. Yeah. And you see this happen multiple times throughout the video. And then at the end of the video, you see a change in the camera. It goes between uh, wide angle and narrow angle. It loses lock because it's lost the the image for uh, like a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. And it it widens these bars to try to get the lock back on. It fails to do it. The object is now just outside of the, the bars and it just continues moving off the side of the screen. So now it has to scan to find it again. Yeah, it should have it should have like widened out the field of view and maybe moved the camera over a bit, but it didn't. It just stayed in the middle. So what's happened is now the, the camera is no longer following this object. Mm. So the camera just stops moving and the object just simply carries off moving to the left. And at the same time as he's doing that, he actually does exactly the wrong thing from what he just should have done at that moment. He zooms in. So ah. instead of zooming back out so you get a wider field of view, right. he zooms in. And the object just kind of like bounces from like near the middle of the screen to twice as big, a bit further out to the side. Oh, and this uh, is the movement that's getting interpreted as movement by the craft. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, people realize eventually that uh, that's not an actual real movement and they, they discount that from their, their calculations. But for the general public, they, they see this move and it looks like this amazing you know, flying off really rapidly. You don't realize that's the camera making adjustments rather yeah. than the object yeah. itself. If you, if you, if you correct for that, that zoom, it actually just kind of drifts off the side pretty slowly, really. And, and actually, I say pretty slowly, it's actually at exactly the same angular rate that the camera used to be panning. So that pretty much shows you that what's happened is the camera stopped moving the object keeps moving okay. and moves off the side of the screen. So there's really no indication that the object does any certain movements at all, other than just it being some kind of object, possibly a plane, flying away from, from the camera and a bit to the left. 
Okay. <laughs> so, so much for the 200 Gs and all that. Big if true, but yeah. probably not true in this particular case. Not backed by the evidence. Okay. And then moving on to the gimbal video, that one is, I think, a little more visually interesting. That's got, it's kind of like a diagonal tilt, and there's a bunch of clouds on the bottom of the screen. And we're we're following, again, you know, yeah, something, right. (laughs) Can't necessarily call it an object. Uh, But that's another one where they kind of invert the footage. It goes from being like white on black to black on white. Yeah. Uh, What's going on there? Well, again, this is all infrared, this one. There's no no TV mode in this one. So we're just looking at heat. Mm. And heat... In this sense, we're talking about heat radiation. When you use the word heat in science, you could be referring to a number of different things, but uh, technically heat is just the, I guess, the energy of the uh, the molecules bouncing around in Mm -hmm. in matter. But uh, when we think about heat coming off something, it's the radiation of the heat coming off something. The heat of the sun is the radiation of the sun. And everything radiates heat to some degree, and we can have cameras that can see that heat, that thermal radiation, infrared radiation, and hot objects obviously have a lot more of it. And so you can kind of think of it as being more or less the same as visible light. Mm. So Mm -hmm. things that apply to photography also apply to infrared, uh, thermal photography. There are differences in that infrared radiation, long-wave infrared radiation, doesn't go through the same types of lenses as, mm. as visible light. So you need special lenses made of like sapphire or something like that. But, but fundamentally, a... we're used to seeing on the visible spectrum, and all we've done is we've mm-hmm. set this capture device to capture on a slightly different band of the same. Yeah, it's it's not not quite as simple as that because it's uh, you need fairly different types of sensors to, to mm. capture it because there's lots of heat bouncing around, like the uh, the sensor itself has. A a certain temperature which is oh, generally warmer yeah. than the uh, the things out there so there's a, a variety of techniques for getting around that but you know just ba- the bottom line is it's just a thermal camera that's showing the the heat being radiated out of things okay now if you point a thermal camera at the back of a jet engine that's super hot that's that's like something like uh, i can't remember what it is exactly like 3000 degrees celsius something like that the the exhaust of a jet engine oh, very wow. very hot it's that's it's, enough to melt steel <laughs> yes it's uh it's, it's save yeah, that I'm, for I'm, later <laughs> I, I might have been i might have exaggerated there i think it might be 3000 fahrenheit uh, but it's very hot like it's very hot. obviously it is you know it's this this is the flame of a jet engine it's yeah it's super hot so Point the thermal camera at that, it's the same thing essentially as pointing at a, a flashlight or a searchlight even. And you can do a little experiment yourself, just take your cell phone and take a flashlight or another cell phone that has you know, the flashlight in and just point the flashlight at the cell phone as camera and just look at that, uh, that, that flashlight. And you'll see what's called a glare around around the flashlight. You won't be able to actually see the flashlight itself, which will be like say maybe you know an inch across you will see a glare that looks like it's several inches across mm. and maybe even bigger depending on how how bright it is and maybe obscuring the bounds of yeah. the original object and and that could it, it kind of obscure the flashlight and your hand and if you were talking about a plane that glare can obscure the entire plane uh, the glare from the the engine and i think that's what we're seeing here i think we're seeing the glare from the engines uh, or engine, probably engines are like a, perhaps it's another FA-18 which has two engines very close together at the back. Okay. And that would create one big glare that would cover the entire thing. And this is something we can see, we have examples of this happening and that's what we're seeing. And I think that the shape of the glare 
is an interesting thing because it looks like a flying saucer, but the shape of the glare is kind of defined somewhat hmm. by the light path. What's actually the shape of things in the optical path that the light goes through to get from the, the object to the sensor. Yeah. And uh, it can create different shapes. And uh, usually it's, it's just round because most cameras have a fairly simple light path. But you can do little things to experiment with that. If you take your iPhone, your any phone camera, and you just touch the glass that covers the lens with your finger and maybe mm. just going to rub it a little bit in one direction or, or another. And just that tiny little little smudge on it can change the shape of a glare from being round to being saucer-shaped. It kind of depends what you do. It could end up having these long streaks. But you know, it quite often ends up being kind of saucer-shaped. Okay. And that's what we have is something that's, yeah, kind of an oval. Yeah. But I think I remember the pilots were even recorded uh, exclaiming, uh, it's rotating. It's rotating. And that's that's the interesting thing. And this, unfortunately, is where it gets complicated. It's, I almost certainly find that when I explain this to people, they don't get it the first time I explain it to them. Uh, so the shape of a glare is relative to the camera. Uh, so let's say your, your camera has got, say, some kind of, I don't know, a, an aperture that's like diamond-shaped. Uh, mm. So your glare would then end up looking a bit like a, a diamond shape. So it would be like, like a horizontal saucer. Now, if you were to rotate the camera, the shape of the glare will also you know, rotate with, with that shape of the camera, mm -hmm. which means that depending on how you look at it, uh, either the the world picture rotates or the glare itself rotates. It it's kind of depends. It's very okay. kind of complicated now because it depends <laughs> yeah. how you look at it. An easy way to kind of simulate what I'm talking about here is to rotate. Do do this thing. Hold your flashlight in front of the camera. Yeah. And then uh, rotate the camera itself. And if you do have a shaped glare, you will see the the glare shape tends to rotate and the horizon seems to stay the same. But then if you record the footage of that, you will see that the glare doesn't rotate, but the background does rotate. Because of course, if you're rotating the camera, <laughs> then the, the picture rotates. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little confusing. I'm yeah, yeah. It, it is, it is counterintuitive. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. So what's happening in a, a very simple level here is that the camera has to rotate when it goes over the forward position because it's got this thing called gimbal lock. It's only got two big axes of rotation. Mm -hmm. Even though it doesn't use those axes for fine tracking, it's still got to do a big adjustment at some point to go from one position to the other. So that it has to do a rotation. But if the camera was just to rotate, what would happen is the the whole picture would rotate, which you know obviously you don't want the picture to rotate. Right. So they've got a mechanism inside the camera called the derotation mechanism, which just basically rotates the picture back again. So okay. you've got this combination of physical requirements to rotate the camera, right. and then a correction for that later on down the system. So because the camera has rotated, the position of the glare relative to the picture has changed. Now, that doesn't actually rotate itself straight away because you, you're relative to the camera, but mm -hmm. once you derotate it, it derotates everything back. So the horizon's back where it was, and now the glare has changed position. Okay. And so what we're seeing here in the gimbal video is the glare appearing to rotate because the camera of this has correctional rotated. mechanism within the camera. Yeah, it's a little confusing to see the different steps and how it yeah. actually works and why you do it. But this is something that we've gone into in great depth on Metabunk, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And what we did was we looked at the patents for the camera, this Atflio system, and we found that it described exactly this system of this rotation that was required 
around zero degrees and it was actually plus or minus three degrees uh, in in general it was you know not entirely clear exactly where it does it but around that position mm-hmm. and a derotation mechanism which then puts the picture upright and if you experiment a little bit with glares you will see that would automatically make a glare rotate and when it does that rotation i i love what you do with metabunk is that not only do you kind of identify these mechanisms and do the work to find out what kind of equipment was used but you'll replicate these effects and you'll show them very simply just mm-hmm. oh, here let's just use equipment that any one of us can get our hands on and replicate these effects look we did it and take yeah. something that is definitely counterintuitive involves multiple frames of reference and some special technical knowledge and kind of boil it down to something that feels concrete yeah but it's still quite of a challenge though <laughs> this, yeah. this this one in particular is a difficult one to to explain to people and i i've ended up making so many different videos i think it's become a little confusing people don't know which video to watch so i might have to make another kind of meta video <laughs> a meta meta bunk to pull that all together I, I've seen all these claims and all these new video releases, and I keep thinking, oh, we need to talk about this on the podcast because we've had previous like summers of UFO where mm-hmm. it, we, we go to a bunch of conventions and get to hear kind of fresh from the believers how they're representing these claims. And we just haven't been touching on that topic for the last couple of years, which is part of why I wanted you to come on to help our listeners kind of catch up with some of this UFO news that's been going on. Yeah. So I think in both of those, uh, are you fairly confident in saying that the most likely explanation is that these are other planes in the sky? I think that's probably the explanation because we know we're looking at something that's fairly far away and isn't moving with any sudden movements or anything like that. And it's hot the same way you would expect a jet engine to be hot. And it appears to be moving within the general parameters that a a jet plane would move. Uh, There's been objections raised to the the idea like, you know, how could the camera operator possibly mistakenly uh, lock on to a friendly plane? But, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, what are are the alternatives here? I mean, he made a mistake or, you know, it's a warp drive from China or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's, or, it's, or it's aliens. Right. So you've you got to think, even though it's an unlikely thing that they might have made this mistake, I, mean, I don't know how unlikely it is, but let's say it is very unlikely. Is it more unlikely than the alternatives? So I guess then the question that most people might ask is, doesn't the military have the same ability as you to ask these same questions and, and solve sure. these riddles? Yeah, they do. And uh, I would think they probably have. And if they have looked into it to at least the same degree that I have, they probably have even more, they they would have considered these hypotheses and incorporated them in as as possible solutions. The thing is, I haven't actually identified what these objects are. Mm -hmm. All I've done is is demonstrated, like in the FLIR case, that it doesn't make these sudden high G moves. And in the Gimbal case, that it, it doesn't appear to be Rotating. A rotation of the object yeah. itself. You know? Another thing about the gimbal object I didn't mention earlier is that when it rotates, when it appears to rotate, you can actually see various lights, splotches in the sky that also rotate with it, mm. which kind of shows that it's kind of, it pretty much has to be some kind of optical effect, the rotation. Yes. You know, you've got these, these regions of light and dark that rotate that's a in, good point in that uh, in that, that video because and, other multiple points of reference can sometimes help you at least uh, get an indication of something being either an effect on the camera side or mm-hmm. in the world that it's pointing at and yeah when things move in clusters together and stay at fixed distances that kind of tells you this might be something that we're looking at on the lens itself or in the mechanism yeah. you know that the sensor is attached to 
Yes, because we're looking at something that's many miles away and uh, it's there's no physical way that there could be just kind of ghostly shapes orbiting that happen to rotate at the same position. Right. It's Which, much more obvious that it's the camera that's doing I the think rotation. you're always careful to say, as you've done here, that sure, a craft from distant galaxies is still on the table. By all means, we could say that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not trying to rule that out necessarily, but we're showing that there's a far more mundane explanation that is perfectly plausible. Yeah, we always have the possibility that any unknown object could be something, you know, a wide range of things. It could big, be a foreign big if craft, true. it could be advanced technology, you know, it could be aliens. But, uh, you know, I, I, I rank my hypotheses in the order I, which I think they're the most likely. And I think if you kind of compare hypotheses and bubble the one that's mm-hmm. the most likely up to the top, <laughs> The one that bubbles to the top is that it's a distant plane that has been mistakenly locked onto by the pilot who didn't realize it's a distant plane. And it just seems like there isn't a better fit than that for the, the facts that we see. And it certainly simplifies the, the leaps of physics that are required to right. explain these rotations and and sudden movements. What, what are some of the other tools you've used? Because, for example, I've noticed in a, a recent uh, video when you were looking at, I think it was another piece of footage, it was a couple like red lights uh, just a few days ago, I think. Yeah. And uh, you went to a plane tracker and you were able to see commercial flights that had been around that location at that time and where the camera might actually have been pointing at and the flights it might have seen. Yeah, the, there's uh, quite a lot of UFOs end up being planes just because people are, you know, kind of you, you have a simplistic idea of what a plane looks like in the sky. And when you see it in a, a novel situation, you don't recognize it as such. And the most common thing is when it's way off in the distance. If you're looking at a plane that's, say, about 50 plus miles away from you and it's flying directly towards you and it's dark and it's got its landing lights on, it looks like a hovering light. And it could look like these hovering lights that were seen in this recent video that was produced. You will see these two pairs of lights. It could also be a drone that's much closer, but it fits with this idea of being something that's far away. Now, if you're underneath the air route for, say, inbound traffic for a particular uh, airport, quite often these are fairly narrow routes and you see the same type of plane coming over again and again. Uh, And you look in that direction, you'll see more than one plane Mm -hmm. appearing to hover in the distance, just as a bright light hovering in the distance. And this is kind of what the video looks like. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying that's initially what it looks like. So you've got to ask, were there planes flying overhead? And you can look, there's a a variety of websites you can use. There's one called Flight Radar 24 and another one called Planefinder, planefinder planefinder.net. And they they basically store the positions of all the planes uh, by, you know, they record them with this this network of people who have these these receivers who download the data from the planes. Is this just purely an enthusiasm-based enterprise or is this tied to uh, commercial uses? it's a system that is used commercially. Okay. In that now all planes are required to have a thing called an ADS-B transceiver, which is something that uses the, the GPS data of the plane. The plane will have a GPS receiver and get its coordinates, and then it will be constantly broadcasting this ADS-B data, mm. which has that GPS coordinates, the, the altitude, maybe the barometric altitude, the call sign of the plane, and its its destination, and where it's come from, and uh, some, some other 
useful bits of information like that, the speed and the heading and things like that. They're all, it's, it's only like... So all of that is just kind of things. freely, publicly available. Yeah. I assume yeah. there's some military craft maybe that don't have to broadcast Yeah, the military craft don't have to have it. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, depending okay. on, on what, what's going on. But it can be received by the public, this data, because it's, it's meant to be for planes that are nearby. They can just listen to the nearby ADSB mm. data and that they know automatically which planes are nearby them. It's like a kind of a backup thing on top of the, the air traffic control. Helpful, yeah, safety backup. Yeah, uh, it's, and then it's great. There are similar tools for tracking satellite movement as well, right? Yeah, you, you can look up where a satellite is going to be. And yeah, so you can, if you wanted to look at a, a portion of the sky, you can, to a certain degree, figure out if a satellite has been there and figure out where it's going to be in the future, to a certain degree. There's, there's a bit more variation with uh, satellites' orbits. And, and also ships. You can There's the ship tracking sites where you can see where, where ships have been. Sometimes UFOs turn out to be lights on the horizon, which is just a distant ship that uh, looks like it's hovering in the sky when it's actually just way off uh, on the horizon. So with these videos... That I've looked at the one with the, the lights. Yeah, uh, they they actually had the rough location of the plane off the coast of Los Angeles, and I and the date and time. And I looked at it and I saw there was this stream of planes coming in. <laughs> I just you know I did a little rewind thing. You can just put in the date. Yeah, uh, go back several years. Sometimes you need a subscription for it, but uh, you can go back several years and and look at what planes were there. And there was a line of planes coming in, so that could actually explain what's seen on the video. That's great. I, I think of a couple other UAPs, UFOs, that uh, might be good examples of, of these principles we're talking about. One has been on the news a lot lately, and it's that green footage. So it's mm -hmm. uh, also kind of nighttime footage. And there are these pyramid UAPs. You had a great explanation for that. It, essentially, you see kind of a dark green field yeah. in the footage, and there's these bright green triangles kind of moving across the screen. Yeah, this is um, this isn't infrared. It's night vision uh, camera, which is basically just amplifying the existing light. So it's it's what the soldiers use when they're you know they're going into covertly into a place. They'll have these little things that clip onto their helmet that they can see the in in the dark essentially in, mm -hmm. in near darkness. You do need a little bit of light. And at the start of the video, you see like a, a few lights, and then the guy pans across the screen a bit. And he kind of catches a flashing light in the sky and he zooms in on it and you see that it appears to be triangular shaped and he follows it for a few seconds and then you see two other triangles kind of swim into view and then this this one flashing triangle moves past these two other triangles and that's the end of the video. Now the first thing I noticed about the video was that it was shape was flashing and uh, mm -hmm. you know, flashing lights in the sky are usually planes. <laughs> And right. the pattern of the flashing of this light seems very similar to me to, to a plane. And so I thought, if this is just plane, like, why is it triangular shaped? Right. And what occurred to me, like, pretty much straight away, within 10 minutes of seeing the video, was that this was a thing called bokeh, which is the shape that a, a point of light will take when the camera is out of focus. That same effect that we see used artistically sometimes, where people will have a bunch of Christmas lights and they'll put them out of focus and the lights will kind of take the shape of the aperture of the camera. Exactly, exactly, yes. And uh, quite often you'll see it in, in movies or TV shows uh, where they're focused on the character in the foreground and the background's very out of focus. And you'll notice, and this is something I notice all the time now because I'm now bokeh obsessed, uh, you'll see these shapes in the background. Sometimes they're circular 
but quite often they are kind of some like an octagon shape or a, yeah, or a nine-sided hexagon. shape. Something You're like right. That. Or, yeah. And you can occasionally get them where they are triangular shaped. If the camera has a triangular aperture, then uh, the bokeh, the shape of a light takes when it's out of focus, becomes triangular shaped. So I thought that's a good possibility, and I tried to figure out, like, you know, do they have night vision cameras that have triangular apertures? Uh, first of all, I thought that perhaps uh, someone just taped up their lens, because sometimes sometimes you tape up the lenses of night vision cameras to uh, decrease the amount of light going in them, and it also increases the focus. You can have the same effect. Yeah, and that would, that would actually create a uh, triangular bokeh if someone did it with a little triangular hole. Yeah, but then I found that there actually are quite a few night vision cameras that have lenses that have triangular apertures. And I had a friend on Metabunk. He had one. He just happened to have one, you know, so they're not that uncommon. Wow. And he took it out and he took photos of, of some planes and some stars. Replicated and the effect? It replicated the exact video. And the thing was that when you pointed at the sky, the planes turn into triangles, but stars also turning into triangles. And the fun thing about right. this video is that the lights at the start of the video, someone pointed out that they are actually stars. There's four stars and the planet uh, Jupiter. They were able to identify from the pattern yeah. where we were looking. Yeah, as you know, Jupiter moves across the sky, so it's not in the same place every day, and you know, it moves throughout you know, over the course of you know, so many years. It's going to be in a different position. But that day, that's where it was, next to these stars. Hmm. And this, they all matched brightness-wise, and the, the exact positions was exactly right. So we knew this. we were looking at stars. But they went triangular as well. They weren't triangular, but that was because the camera wasn't zoomed in. And ah. the resolution of the camera was so low that they ended up just being like uh, two or three pixels at the most. Okay. So they, they kind of took on the shape of these kind of truncated little triangles of of blocky pixels but you know they were actually when he moves the camera over then and you see this flashing object it's not a triangle either it's the same as these stars it's just like a little little block of like you know four or five pixels or something mm -hmm. but later on what, what i did was take these these stars this star pattern and figure out where it was in in stellarium which is this free uh, astronomy software that you can use to take a, an image of the sky i hadn't heard about this before your book that sounds like a fantastic app yeah it's, it's really useful it's really useful because you, again you can go back in time and see where stars would be at a, a certain position in the sky from a certain location so i i rolled back to was it july the 15th 2019 and saw that you know jupiter was in the right place and these stars were in the right place and then i moved the camera across the sky the same amount as it was moving in the video, because you can see it moving mm -hmm. relative to the clouds and things. And where it ended up, uh, where those two lights were, these, these two other pyramids in the video, there were two stars. And not only two stars, but they were the, the right distance apart, and the, the lower one was brighter than the upper one, and it matched perfectly. So we could tell what we were looking <laughs> at wasn't two other flying saucers, you know, flying pyramids. It was, it was two stars. So we knew that <laughs> if those stars showed up as triangles, then this other flashing light must not be a, an actual pyramid. It must, in fact, be just a flashing light. And then we have a plane. That's fantastic. I remember sending that video in your explanation to a coworker who had sent me the video in kind of a more breathless presentation and said, well, what do we do about this? <laughs> I said, oh, well, here, watch this. Uh, Mick West was able to replicate it pretty well. Uh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, that was a fun one. Another one that's been getting a lot of play is this spherical object that dips down into the water. Yeah. What do we do with that footage? That is an interesting one. I think almost it's almost not that interesting just looking at it. It's a pretty boring looking video, really. But Yeah, yeah it feels like the, it kind of slowly descends. This yeah, was off the it, coast of San Diego, was it? It was, yes. And it descends very slowly. Uh, it's kind of a little misleading, the video, because there's a big cut in the middle of it where it kind of jumps from higher up to lower down. Mm. And earlier on in the video, the camera was kind of panning left and right, which gives the illusion that it's actually moving left and right. But it's it's not moving at all, really. It's just very, very slowly descending. Uh, okay. It's almost as slow as like a, a setting star. You, know, you might be uh, forgiven for thinking that it was the moon setting or something like hmm. that. But it doesn't really seem to be because it's infrared and it looks like it's a, it's a heat source. But what was claimed about this video is that it represents a transmedium craft which is a ridiculously uh, a ridiculous reach of a claim. The idea a transmedium craft is a craft which operates in both air and water. Oh, okay, like an amphibious vehicle, the equivalent yeah, so for it could the fly air. in the air and then fly underwater, then pop out again and fly in the air again. This okay. is the idea. But the video doesn't show that. It shows something descending. It never comes back out, right? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't come back out again. And we don't even know if it even goes in the water. And in fact, if you kind of zoom in on the video as it disappears and you slow down the video and look at what's actually happening, you'll see that it doesn't actually kind of disappear. It kind of shrinks. And where it's shrinking is right at the horizon. So Hmm. I think what's actually happening is it's just going behind the horizon of the ocean. Wait, are you trying to say that the Earth is curved? I am trying to say the Earth. <laughs> okay. Uh, and because we're very low down, we're just on the deck of a ship at this point. Yeah, this, the camera is only mounted maybe like 80 feet up or okay. something like that. So, so it may not even be deflating or Yeah, or I think it's just, it's just being, it, it could well be something like, again, unfortunately, another plane. Like a hmm. plane that's just flying away from us. And we're looking at it. It's off somewhere in the distance, like uh, going towards the horizon because it's like you know maybe a hundred miles away. So no Superman yet. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it might be a plane. <laughs> these these are the things that that come out. And yeah, the 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 UAP report that came out funnily like gave a list of things like that. It it listed airborne clutter. Yeah, these things could be airborne clutter. Things like birds, balloons, uh, drones, mm-hmm. plastic bags. You know, they list this things like this as you know the official possible causes yeah, of, uh, yeah. of UAPs. But people lock on to the other possibilities. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they <laughs> they look look for the more more entertaining possibilities. No. But often things end up you know, almost invariably. In fact, things end up being they end up being one of two things. Uh, if you investigate a UFO, it ends up being either a something boring or b not enough data. And that's how every single UFO case ends mm-hmm. up. We never get the golden goose or whatever, the, the wonderful thing that everyone is looking for, the philosopher's stone of ufology. Yes. A one case where it's irrefutable that it is something extraordinary. The, the white crow that everybody looks for in um, yes, psychic research. The black swan. Yes, exactly. Yes, but we haven't got there. And okay. we've had 70 years of people looking and many, many claims and uh, thousands of videos and millions of photos and millions of witnesses. And now with everybody with these high-resolution, amazing cameras in their pockets at all times. Yeah, they're, they're getting better at, at hiding. And of course, this is you know something people have observed for many decades as, mm-hmm. the, as cameras increase and as things improve, uh, UFOs recede. They, they exist in a low information zone. They're either like too far away or they're out of focus or it's too dark. 
uh, or they're, they're too small. Right. And you can't tell what they are. And when you get closer to them, if you if something moves out of the low information zone and becomes discernible, it goes into the boring category. <laughs> Never does it go into the much more interesting mm. category. It always goes into the boring category. Which so we're all just got, waiting for, something to fall into that interesting I'd category. love it. I'd love something yeah. interesting to come along, so, you know, a, a more challenging video to explain or something like that. Or a video, you know, what I'm looking for really isn't just a better video, it's two videos from shot from different angles, two good videos shot yeah. from different angles that yeah. show the same thing that you could triangulate. But that again, you know, the gold standard, we never actually get it. We never get good quality videos. We never get triangulable videos and we never get corroborating uh, radar data with a video. So I guess the message out there to everybody is if you do see one of these things, don't only take out your high resolution camera and start filming it get everybody else to as well yeah you know and, yeah definitely uh, more and, uh, data phone your friend in the next town so they can they can check it out as well absolutely That's the thing like if yes. you see a light in the sky it could be 10 feet away from you or it could be 10 miles away from you if if all you're seeing is just this one little speck of light and especially when you're taking your camera out and taking a picture of it uh there's many known cases where uh police cars even have hmm. chased after a white light yeah for sometimes for many minutes, even up to an hour. And it turns out it's Venus. And it turns out it's Venus. Yeah. It happens surprisingly often. I feel bad that we haven't mentioned swamp gas yet, but we'll throw <laughs> that in the mix. Swamp gas is a funny thing because it's just part of UFO mythology. So I think it's it was an excuse. I think Stanton Freeman. Was that Stanton? Stanton Freeman? Yeah, maybe uh, Heineck. 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 J. Allen Heineck. J. Allen Heineck, I think. Okay. Uh, when, when he was kind of a UFO debunker before where he was a UFO believer. Oh, right. He gave that excuse. Yeah, fun fun bit of trivia. Uh, you can see yeah. him in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, oh, Steven yeah. Spielberg included him in uh, in a shot toward the end. Uh, let's see, I, I was thinking of another famous, well, in this case, a debunker, Philip Class. I think he had, yeah. he left the UFO community with a curse saying, you'll <laughs> never get anything substantial. Kind of like what you were saying. We keep waiting mm-hmm. for something really exciting that really makes us have to, to work and figure out. And he sort of said, the best you'll ever have is blurry photos and and nothing substantial but uh hope springs eternal yeah well hopes are high right now hopes are high right around with this this uap report and before it came out people were hoping that there will be all these all this evidence will be released the government will tell us everything that they know about uaps but they, yeah. they almost said nothing at all about specific cases they said one thing was a balloon Okay, and then the others could be any of these number of things, but they need more data in 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 more cases. And even so. Obama recently kind of chimed in and said, "Yeah, well, there are things that we haven't identified," and, yeah. and he didn't go so far as to claim otherworldly origins. But yeah, this is a really hot topic at the moment. Sure, and you know, if if something is not identified, we should try to identify it. So I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. Now, do you think that our kind of jump to make every story about alien technology does that blind us to any real potential security threats you know maybe we should be thinking about enemy drones or something like that yeah we definitely should be thinking about enemy drones and enemy airspace incursions and and other issues and uh, yeah i think it's good that they're trying to remove the stigma of, of reporting ufos because if something is just swept under the rug like especially mm-hmm. now when we do have far more threats of autonomous aerial vehicles uh, unmanned aerial platforms and various types of spy platforms, then then yeah, we need to be very vigilant for that. And people should report something, especially military pilots, if they see something in the sky. Uh, so I think it's I think it's good that there is a bit of a sea change to be not mocking 
UFO yes. reports so much because there are there are serious UFOs. Right? They're Real worth UFOs. taking seriously. Like foreign drones are a serious uh, actual thing. Right. All right. This is Ross from the future stepping in just to interrupt, well, myself and Mick for a moment to talk about summertime, right? Aren't you all thinking about summertime? Happy summer. Hope you're having a great time seeing family, seeing friends again. But also, I hope you're seeing some of your best fiends as well. That's right. This episode is supported in part by Best Fiends, which uh, if you've listened to this show before, you've probably heard me talk about. Uh, It's a game I really enjoy playing. I've got it on my phone here. I'm at level, always have to check in here. I'm at level 2,213. So uh, see if you can catch up to me, unless you're, you're already far past. It's a fun puzzle game. It's colorful. You collect lots of bugs that help you get through all of these puzzles as you go through level by level. There's side quests. If you get in within the next couple days, you can still participate in Fiend Dependence Day. There are thousands, even beyond what I've mentioned. There are thousands of fun puzzles to solve. There's something new every day challenges, incentives, bonuses, and those collectible characters just keep coming. You can upgrade them. If you're a completionist like me and love to collect everything, uh, you'll be in heaven. This is exactly what you want. So check it out. Try out Best Fiends. It's free to download. Uh, Of course, you can buy upgrades to speed things up, but you don't have to. It's got at least 100 million downloads, which is huge. That's a big number. And uh, it's something that you can play when you've just got, you know, a few minutes. You want to just relax, do something fun that keeps your brain occupied. I enjoy it while sometimes listening to audiobooks or watching YouTube clips or watching movies or taking a walk around the neighborhood. All kinds of fun ways to play. And if you do sign up and start playing, you can add me. My friend code is 2350912, so that's a fun way to connect to me. Uh, it's nice to see invitations from listeners come in all the time and, uh, and join in on all the puzzle solving. So, download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. But I want to make sure, especially if you're going out, you're picnicking, having lunch with friends, that you are taking care of your teeth. And to do that, you're going to want to know about Quip. Now listen, mouthwash hasn't changed in 140 years. 140 years! Most brands are still selling big, bulky bottles that are mostly full of water and alcohol. That's why the oral care experts at Quip created a mouthwash that gives you more of the ingredients you need and less of the stuff that already comes out of your faucet. And actually, I really like that because I have the Quip mouthwash. And so it's this capsule that you keep, of course, in your bathroom or wherever you brush your teeth. And they give you the concentrated mouthwash. So you squeeze down on the button on the top and in this little chamber, that concentrated mouthwash comes out and they give you little cups. So you then tip it over and pour it into the cup and then you add the water. So nobody had to ship you all this water that would take up extra weight because you can add that yourself. Plus, their alcohol-free 4X concentrated mouthwash comes in an eco-friendly refill bottle that's 100% recyclable. Well, that's good to know. It's their way of helping make your mouth a little cleaner and the earth a little greener. And of course, you know from Quip, you can also get the electric toothbrush. That's how they started. They've got floss. They've got gum or uh, what is it? Chewy bits. 
All of these are great. And along with the mouthwash, Quip also delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months starting at $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. And if you go to getquip.com slash ohno5 right now, you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's $5 off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes a refillable dispenser and a 90-day dose supply of Quip's 4X concentrated formula at getquip.com slash ohno5, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash ohno5. That's O-H-N-O and the number five. Quip, the good habits company. And now back to my conversation with Mick. Well, I certainly wanted to talk to you about all of these recent UAP phenomenon. Thank you for clarifying a lot of that. But I wanted to talk to you more broadly about some of the other topics that you cover because uh, sure. Metabunk and, and your research isn't only around UFOs. It's also around Flat Earth. Metabunk was a huge resource for me when I was kind of engaged with the Flat Earthers a few years back. But also Chemtrails, I think that was kind of your mm-hmm. entry into this whole topic. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. What, what is your background? How did you get into debunking? Yeah, that's an interesting story, I guess. Like, um, I used to be a video game programmer. Like, I worked on the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series of video games. Oh, great. And I kind of retired from that, like, and had a lot of spare time back in the uh, the early 2000s. And I started a website called Contrail Science because at the time I was learning to fly. So I was interested in aviation and uh, aviation weather and things like that. And I'd also been just pottering around on Wikipedia, like editing Wikipedia pages. And one of them was the chemtrails conspiracy hmm. theory. I, I I wasn't really feeling editing Wikipedia so much. I mean, it's a great resource and people should edit it, but I wanted to write things in more depth from my perspective. So I, I started a blog about the chemtrails conspiracy theory that I called Contrail Science, which was basically just explaining that the things you see in the sky are contrails. Yeah. And then I, w- I would do things like identify a particular plane that uh, was flying overhead that was leaving a contrail that people thought was suspicious. And I would say, oh, that's just, you know, Southwest flight, whatever it is. And I think most people have heard us talk about this on the show before, probably know about it from pop culture. But the idea of chemtrails is that there are usually government forces, malign influences that are purposely releasing chemicals into the air, either to uh, manipulate the weather or more nefariously to mess with our minds or, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the, like I said earlier, they, they're trying to reframe it as a geoengineering thing now, because like, the most popular theory is that they are trying to change the weather or the climate. Okay, uh, so that feels they, a little they, more credible. Yeah, the mind they, control so, so they think, so they think. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> they're not getting a lot of traction uh, recently. Yeah, it seems like that's been losing currency. Yeah, and I think part of that is because I did a lot of debunking of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually did a, I helped write a scientific paper called Quantifying Consensus on the Existence of a Secret Large-Scale Aerial Spraying Program, hmm. which was basically, what do scientists think about chemtrails? Yeah. And we, we surveyed a whole bunch of scientists about some evidence of chemtrails, which were these photos that actually showed contrails, but people said they were chemtrails. And then these chemical tests that people did of soil analysis and water analysis. And then we got all these atmospheric experts and, and chemists to look at the results and say what they thought they were. And it turns out they're just contrails. And okay. These, these tests don't actually show anything. And then that study got published 
and it became like the the number one uh, most uh, viewed uh, study like all year on on that, that particular journal because Amazing. it got so much media attention because yeah. the media is fascinated by these these weird conspiracy theories. Uh, but it did a, a good job of of saying like here is the scientific position on chemtrails, and so the, the media no longer really were, gave it that much credence. Mm-hmm. So that was quite helpful. It would be good to be able to do things like that with, uh, with yeah, other things as well. That's true. Uh, and it feels like just from Carrie's and my involvement at various conferences, there's usually someone with a table about chemtrails, but it does feel like that has kind of been relegated to the sideline. And I think uh, largely in part to your efforts. Yeah, I think it's one of those conspiracy theories that there isn't that much activism uh, going on anymore. Uh, but it's something that I think simmers in the background. Yeah, there's not a lot of people who are really into JFK anymore. Right. But I think there's still a lot of people who think that he was assassinated by the CIA. And so there's probably still a lot of people who think that chemtrails are real. It's just that they they don't really bother about them anymore. It's just part of life, being being poisoned by the government every day from planes. (laughs) And they also think that 9-11 was an inside job. So these conspiracy theories... They don't do much with them, but they still be, they're still part of their lives. There's still this kind of substrate of belief that informs them and their decisions and their willingness to believe other conspiracy theories right. later on. So I think it's still, even if it's not in the public eye, it's still going on and still, still worth addressing. Well, and I think we've seen something similar with uh, Flat Earth, and I wanted to get your feedback about that. It feels mm-hmm. like Flat Earth has been in many ways supplanted by maybe QAnon theory. Yeah, and like, you know, doing a Google Trends search, you can see Flat Earth, which was on a breakaway path, uh, did finally invert. And now it's just kind of less searched, less talked about. Yeah, it's interesting looking at these trend lines, like the 9-11 conspiracy theory, you know, obviously started back in 2001, but it kind of ended around between 2006 and 2008. Hmm. And it's been on a gradual decline ever since, but it's still on a slow burn. It's still, there's still people doing things. I suppose you could map all of these things like, you know, Elvis sightings obviously have tapered off because uh, that one sort of lived its yeah. course. I don't know how old he'd be now, but it would be quite old. The moon it's landing. It's tricky with some of these things because you use a search term like chemtrails. And there was a massive increase in interest in chemtrails in the year. Was it, was it earlier this year? I think it might have been earlier this year, around you know, 2020, 2021. Huge increase in chemtrail interest. But this was because uh, Lena Del Rey had released an album called Chemtrails Over the Country Club. I, I missed that completely. That's why. Yeah, one of the tracks was called Chemtrails Over the Country Club. And, you know, they had this, this, this video that actually shows contrails in the sky. But, uh, oh, wow. So, oh, no. no. It wasn't a really interest in chemtrails as such, although it might have resulted a little bit in that. But what had happened, it was everyone was searching for this new album, Lena Del Rey's album. And it was, oh. it was a, a much much hyped album for many months ahead of time. So people were just constantly waiting to, to find it. And I, I use TweetDeck, which is this, this Twitter interface, and you can put little search columns in. And I had one that was for chemtrails. And it used to, every so often, some chemtrails news would pop up in it. Yeah. When Lena Del Rey announced their album in the months after that, it was just <laughs> constant, like, uh, you know, young people. Uh, saying, when's Chemtrails going to be released? That's interesting. What effect does that have? Does that create so much noise that actual Chemtrail belief gets lost in the shuffle? I mean, how do you filter it out? Or does it bring more people to actually look into Chemtrails or Chemtrail science? I I I think it's 
It, probably the latter. Uh, what it, it means is it's it's hard to discern how much real interest there is in chemtrails. But because you know, just the very mention of the term will, will expose a, a few people to the idea, it will probably bring a few more people into it as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a bad thing for, for both both regards. Okay. So I would encourage pop stars not to yeah. not to name their albums after conspiracy theories. Yeah, like we it. saw that with a flat earth that B.O.B., the rapper, right. you know, greatly increased the profile of those beliefs by espousing them. So celebrities have a lot of influence, you know, use that carefully. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a problem that you know, extends historically as well. Like if you try to try to see how much the term conspiracy theory was used over time, there's a huge confounding factor in that it was a movie called Conspiracy Theory. Oh, uh, right, the Mel Gibson like, film. Like, yeah, like in the 90s, I think. It, it multiplied the usage of the term 20-fold. And this, this was looking at mentions in, in newspapers, uh, which because obviously you can't have Google's, Google's right. trend back in the 90s, but you can look at uh, newspaper archive search results for search terms. And I did that. Which, which comes full circle because then when you look at, say, the history of alien abductions and sightings, those are often influenced by the media as well. So, yeah. you know, what culture gives us as a reference uh, plays itself out in, in our interest and our perception of, of these phenomena. Yeah, you get these circular references where it's really not the thing itself, but the interest in the thing that is, that is showing up. And then that creates more interest, and it's the, the original. Loop. Yeah, if there is a thing, <laughs> the, the start of it, it becomes lost, and there's nothing right. going on beyond just this 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 cycle of noise, uh, which is kind of what we we find ourselves with now with the with the UAP thing. It's uh, right. mostly about the media interest. The stories that people are writing is like, why is there so much interest in UFOs? And the reason is because people are writing stories about why there <laughs> is so much interest in, in UFOs. It's right. A vicious loop. So returning to your story a bit, so you were editing Wikipedia, you had Contrail Science. This was all just uh, purely as a hobby, your yeah. spare time. You you had enough money having retired from uh, Neversoft. Yeah, yeah. And and it still is a hobby. I mean, it's not, I'm not doing this for the money now. It's Right. Uh, so yeah, where's still... all the big corporate shill bucks? I know. It's, uh, my, I'm, it's in, in this tiny little office here in my house. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you address this in your book, which I highly recommend to everybody. It's called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect, where you, you, you tell that whole story in greater detail about how you started Metabunk. And you said that kind of your first money-making enterprise in all of this was writing a book. Um, yeah, no, so, this was it. <laughs> so everybody support that effort. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, re really, you've just been kind of doing this as an interested party. Yeah, and it's not just simply interest. It's I enjoy doing it. Mm. Uh, I enjoy the analysis aspect of it and the, the, the puzzles that you get for especially how to track down what that plane is that you see in the sky, which is something I, I saw a lot with the uh, the chemtrail stuff, and now of course with the UFO stuff, tracking down objects in the sky, you get to use your um, or my 3D expertise from video games. Yeah, it's like the same equations but in reverse. So it's it's kind of fun like applying that information. I think there's a few things that you do incredibly well, and and maybe even uniquely well. One is maintaining that civility in your conversations with people. And I've witnessed this firsthand because when Carrie and I were investigating Flat Earth, uh, I was joining the Facebook groups for these various uh, Flat Earth interest groups. And you would come on there and you would explain the latest thing and you'd include a, a factual breakdown. And uh, so many people would chime in with ad hominem attacks against you specifically, mm -hmm. calling you 
a shill, a sellout, ignorant, and it never connected with you. Just kind of like water off a duck's back and you would just respond civilly and with some more data rather than yeah. any kind of even response to the personal attack. It's very impressive. Well, it, it, it's just something that you arrive at over time, I think, if if you manage to survive. The, I was going to ask, is it, a, uh, is it a practice skill or is it something? Uh, I wouldn't well, say it's practice, it's personality, but it's I do maybe. now. It's, it's, it's like why you, you get a better, much better results, no matter which way you look at it. If you, you know, just treat their anger as misunderstanding, they're coming from a, a genuine position, usually where they believe what they are saying to be true. And they believe you to be either mistaken or to be deliberately uh, trying to confuse them or, or present misinformation in some way, like lying or being a corporate shill or a government mm-hmm. shill. Uh, but you know, you know that they are just simply mistaken. You know that they are wrong. So how can you get angry at someone for making a mistake? It's not like they are bad people or evil people. They're just people who have made a mistake. It's like like if you know i'm not saying that they're children but if a child makes a mistake when they're tying their shoelaces you Mm -hmm. don't get angry at them and you don't get upset at them for that you just explain to them how to properly tie their shoelaces right way to do it you know the same type of thing here if someone doesn't understand what you're saying you can explain it in a different way and if they're suspicious of you you can uh you don't have there's no it's no help from getting angry there's no no benefit from getting angry or reacting angrily or storming off and ignoring them it's better simply to just continue to engage them in in if you if possible if you can do it in a way without you know making them angry sometimes it's better just to walk away hmm. but if you can talk to them just you know just talk to them as as regular people i mean uh, that- i i i was just on a ufo podcast recently and there was a guy there and he was getting a little bit angry at me he said later that he was getting even angrier than he he seems to be but hmm. you know i just keep talking and keep being polite and it works best you know in two ways like you have better communication that way uh, yeah people watching the conversation which is a lot of what goes on on the internet it's not just you and a person right it's you and a person and other people watching you know, especially if you've got like a lot of followers and that's often who you're speaking to the people on the fence yeah they're the yeah. ones who really might be convinced and and that happens like people see me being polite and reasonable and they are convinced from it so, you know, it's not like I'm doing this deliberately to brainwash people <laughs> by being super polite all the time. I just find that's the best communication strategy. I'm, my goal is to get across the facts. My goal yeah. is to show people where they have made mistakes. And the best way to do that is to be respectful of their beliefs and just be polite in your communications with them. You make a fantastic argument for that. And that's uh, entirely true, but it's not always easy to do in practice. No, it's so it's definitely a skill worth pursuing. And uh, I think you do it very well. But then the other piece of that is I feel that with conspiracy theory thinking, uh, there's often this asymmetry in terms of information where Mm -hmm. they've learned all kinds of facts about thermite and nanoparticles and controlled demolition and they rattle this off and it sounds like really studied detailed information and especially when there's a wide variety of beliefs out there it's hard for any of us to just kind of delve in without any special expertise and respond especially not in the moment or quickly how is one to deal with that if you're not an expert on this topic but you sense that maybe they have kind of the wrong idea well people who have these wrong ideas like you know flat earthers say as an extreme example or even like 9-11 truthers or uh, chemtrail believers or uop cover-up believers they have these these beliefs uh in part because they've got 
kind of a limited number of information sources. And they're getting their information from people that agree with their position. You use this term that I love called uh, crippled epistemology, yeah. where you've limited your source of information to a very few uh, trusted sources that will only give you one part of the picture. Yeah, the crippled epistemology term comes from an essay by Cass Sunstein and mm. Adrian Vermeule called, I think, Conspiracy Theories. And they were talking about how to how to deal with conspiracy theories because they're an issue. And specifically, that context was in the jihadist conspiracy theories because okay. a lot of uh, jihadist terrorists believe a lot of very extreme conspiracy theories about the United States and if we can debunk those uh, that can actually help in, mm-hmm. in a very significant way because you know jihadist terrorists are responsible for some of the the worst attacks on the United States you know obviously 9-11 so crippled epistemology I, so you're talking to a person and they've got this limited number of information sources. You can help by providing the other side. Uh, now, it may be that you don't know very much about the topic. So what you can help there is kind of be more of a conduit mm. to the information. You can ask them questions about what they believe and why they believe it. And assuming you don't get infected with the same mind virus that infected them, <laughs> uh, you can figure out why they believe these things and try to figure out the answers to some of the claims that are being made by looking them up. Now, they themselves are perfectly capable of debunking their own beliefs, usually Mm -hmm. simply by Googling them. If they were actually to honestly spend some time investigating the claims that have been made, they would get out. And what I found is that uh, conspiracy theorists usually go through a trajectory where they're, you start off kind of, they get red-pilled by watching a video, and mm. then there's all this fun and games where they're discovering all this new stuff, and they're going from uh, you know sometimes one conspiracy to another, and the, there's new things coming along all the time. But eventually, they will reach some kind of stasis, some kind of plateau, where they give themselves some permission to actually start investigating in an honest, mm-hmm. even-handed way. And once they start doing that, they will often find one thing that they thought was true is not true. Or they will find that someone they thought was a truth teller is not telling the truth. So not not a straw that breaks the camel's back, but a straw that at least gets them to start looking in a critical fashion. Yeah. It's a straw that starts the camel feeling a bit uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, and okay. thinking, why is there all this stuff on my back? The straw that makes the camel groan. Yeah. And so they, they start, they look at, they've now got one thing that they know wasn't as they thought it was. And so they can start looking at other things. And you as a friend can can help them in two ways. You can help them get to that position quicker. And you can help them once they are kind of around that questioning phase. But it, it's Be something a that you need to approach. You need to approach it very carefully because mm-hmm. you can backfire. If you start throwing them information at the, at the start of the, of the discussion, it can just go completely wrong and they can think that you are just giving them disinformation and they can start they, they start to believe right the opposite. I, I can't say how many times i've dropped one of those helpful links here read this mm-hmm. and the first thing i get back is ha snopes that's owned by george soros exactly exactly yes uh, people don't trust certain sources and so you've got to figure out better ways of giving them the information you can uh, you can read it yourself and then tell them and then perhaps link to a more neutral source like perhaps yeah, for some people, Fox News might be a better source. And mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, sometimes even you find Alex Jones says something and you can li- link to something. So either he's saying something that contradicts something they believe 
or is right. contradicting himself, you know, if, it's, if they believe in him. So you can link to a trusted source for them, Alex Jones, right. and point things out. But you, know, you, you got to proceed carefully, and you really have to start from a position of understanding mm-hmm. what they're talking about. And you need to start to do that. You need to learn it by talking to them from a position of respect. And you can kind of join them on this journey. You're sort of learning together. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't mean you have to pretend to believe what they believe. You should be perfectly honest from the start, saying, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think this is true, but I would really like to know why you think it is true and try to figure out, is it true? And if but it isn't, You're then... taking the time and showing enough respect and interest mm-hmm. that you're willing yeah. to engage in yeah. this civilly. Indeed, and they will listen to you if you listen to them. Because uh, a lot of them, they're used to just being ridiculed. And again, you can be quite clear that you think that their ideas are, are wrong. Mm-hmm. But don't say, I think your ideas are a symptom of your mental illness. Or I think your ideas are so idiotic, you must be a moron to believe them. That, that will land like an anvil. Yeah, yeah. just they say, I, I think, yeah, my impression here is that these, this what you are saying is wrong. But I want to know why you think it is correct. Mm-hmm. And then I want to explore that topic. And it doesn't have to be some. It's not something you can do in a day. It's, it's usually not something you can even do in a week or sometimes months. Sometimes it will take take you years to do. But you can maintain effective communication. You can establish and maintain effective communication with someone, and then you know supply them with useful information. Get them stuff from outside of their crippled epistemology. Get them, get them looking at information sources. Get them to the position where they give themselves permission to independently start looking for facts right. uh, that don't necessarily agree with what they're saying, get them into a position where they will actually question things that they've held to be self-evident. And uh, they will eventually get out of the rabbit hole. And that's something that you provide in the book are these stories from people who a lot of others would say don't even exist, people who have emerged from the yeah. rabbit hole, yeah. who were 9-11 conspiracy theorists, who did believe that the earth was flat and eventually came out of it. They do. It, and that's the thing. Eventually, they do come out of it. And uh, yeah, you can you can help people get there quicker mm-hmm. by, uh, by being a good friend to them. That's fantastic. We glossed over a few setup discussions in terms of terminology. You don't have a problem using the word debunk. I know James Randi famously yeah. always <laughs> tried to say, no, no, I'm not a debunker. And Joe Nickel will say, no, no, I'm just investigating. Why are you comfortable using that term? What qualifications I, I, do you put around I've it? I've spoken to both Joe Nickel and James Randi about this. And uh, <laughs> Joe Nickel was, was more abrasive. And uh, uh, Randi was quite polite, but still huh. said like he, he preferred the term investigator than, than debunker. But the reason I, I like the term debunker is that nobody has a problem with something being debunked. Hmm. Like if something has been shown to be true, yeah, even people who are conspiracy theorists will say, oh, that's been debunked. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a noble thing to have done, but okay. somehow it's not actually a noble thing to actually do. Kind of and, like everybody wants to lay claim to the term skeptic. Even people who are on opposite ends of an issue from maybe you or I, they might say, oh, well, I'm skeptical. We all kind of look at that as being a, a positive thing. Yeah. And when I think the term debunked, as in you know, this has been debunked, is, is a fairly neutral term. Uh, it just means it's shown to be false. Okay. It doesn't mean it's been disingenuously uh, 
disinformationized to be seen to be false. It means quite clearly that you know it's been debunked, it's it was false, and now it's been shown to be false, and let's move on because that's that's not true anymore. So if we can do more of that, that's great. But there's also mm. a negative association with debunker, mm-hmm. and that that people think that it means that you set out to right. prove something to be wrong, which is not what I'm doing. Uh, I set out to figure out what's actually going on, especially with UFOs. My goal isn't to prove that aliens don't exist, and my goal isn't to prove that particularly UFO sighting isn't a alien spaceship. My goal mm-hmm. is to figure out what it actually is. Right. And if people are making claims about something, I will debunk those claims if they are false. So you're exposing the falseness within a particular claim. Uh, but if there's something that's true, you know, I'll, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, and I think. One of the reasons I like the term is that it actually provides the opportunity for conversations like this. And you can talk to people about what you're actually doing. And when they actually engage with you enough to see that you are actually honestly investigating things and that you don't rule out the possibility of aliens, which I don't, I don't rule it out, I just think it's extremely unlikely, mm-hmm. then uh, they, they kind of respect you a little bit more. You're always going to get people who say, oh, he's just a debunker. But then if I call myself a UFO skeptic, they're, they're just going to say, oh, he's a person who doesn't believe in UFOs, is skeptical of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And then if I said, oh, I'm a UFO investigator, then they'll say, oh, you're not a real investigator. You're, you're <laughs> always like proving them to be not real. You're actually a debunker. You just can't so win. You, yeah, you can't win by you know trying to call yourself something else. I'm just going to be you know, very honest about what I'm doing. And if people misunderstand what I'm doing, I'll use that as an opportunity to explain what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And Metabunk, where did that name come from? What What were you intending with that? Well, uh, meta is, means kind of about or above, yeah. uh, beyond. Like metaphysics means uh, after physics in, in the Greek. Uh, I think was it was Aristotle wrote the book called Physics, and then the next one he wrote was called Metaphysics, which ah. is just you know, what comes after physics. Uh, but it, it's, it means in, in the vernacular now, it, it means you're talking about a subject rather than about the, the details of the subject. So metabunk is about debunking. It's, okay. It's trying to figure out best practices and try to figure out how to best you know, have conversations with people. Gotcha. So there's a lot of actual debunking going on. Right, of even though it does zoom things. into that level, yeah. Yeah, but there's also some sub-forums where we talk about how do you talk to, to people, like the escaping the rabbit hole aspect of it. And then there's, there's forums where people who are former believers will give their story uh, about, about what was actually going on. It, well, it's a great resource. And every time someone comes to me with new UFO footage and says, Ross, explain this, <laughs> that's the first place I go <laughs> and pass along uh, yeah. Metabunk's yeah, analysis. Yeah. There's, you know, there's fun parts of the the site, which are just, there's a, a subforum called Skydentify, huh. which is, is just about someone posts something and we try to identify what it is in the sky. You know, something that's like usually a UFO type thing or a, yeah. a weird you know, something or other. And we try to identify it. And we do it for fun. We're not doing it to try to disprove that aliens exist. Right. We're doing it because it's a challenge. And it's, it's often a race. There's, there's a few people who are really good at <laughs> right, it. Right, who gets the, the first response. Some people are in uh, other parts of the world. So they're in different time zones. 
Yeah. So sometimes like you post things late at night. I think, oh no, I better try to stay up a bit later <laughs> and try to figure this out. Otherwise, like trail spotter over in Britain gonna is going to, to figure it, it out for me. So. Emphasize the right yeah. part of the image and find the uh, the artifact that explains the, the yeah. question. Yeah, people really get into it. It's quite, quite detailed, some of this stuff and some quite complicated math and 3D recreations and things like that. But it's it's fun. Yeah, that's fun. great. Uh, and there's, right, you know, there's so. other great people doing a lot of this work, like uh, Captain Disillusion. And he does excellent yeah. videos yeah, online. Great. Is there anybody else that you follow for these kinds of analyses? Uh, Captain Disillusion, definitely. He's a, he's a great one. Uh, the, this, yeah, people post on 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 Facebook in the uh, the UFO groups. It's interesting. A lot of the UFO community uh, has people who are debunkers. Uh, so if you join the the Facebook groups for various UFO things, you end up finding people who. I've drifted towards debunking over the years. And this is something I found with 9-11 as well. Some of the 9-11 forums where debunking goes on, it's not very, very many, but you know, the, these, these 9-11 discussion groups, the people who are debunkers now used to be believers. Right. And it and seems like that's a really good way to divert or convert that energy and interest into something that kind of runs parallel because it it feels like often when you're diving into the rabbit hole you're sort of diving a little parallel tunnel to the person who's in the rabbit hole to kind of see how they got there and so it's it's a lot of the same activity uh but now it's from the factual side yeah yeah and and people they're just very familiar with the topic and they i think when when they realize that it's not so true as they thought it was. I've memorized all yeah. these things about thermite and melting points. Yeah. Let's use this proactively now. Yeah, and and, and, th- and it's kind of almost a gradual thing sometimes because a lot of them still end up being a bit suspicious. Uh, you know, these UFO debunkers, a lot of them mm-hmm. believe in UFOs, but they, they they think, oh, we've got to get rid of the actual bunk, the the stuff that's nonsense. We've got to get rid of that. So that they end yeah. up working on that. And then they kind of end up shifting more and more towards the, oh, this is all you know nonsense because every single thing that they look at ends up being nonsense. That reminds me of a a really important point that you make in the book that I I thought was a really helpful tool for understanding beliefs is this demarcation line Hmm. on the spectrum of conspiracy beliefs that no matter what it is you believe, whether you're very skeptical or whether you believe all of the above, somewhere you draw the line where you say kind of everything to the left of this, I'm I'm a little suspicious of. This sounds a little far-fetched and crazy. Don't lump me in with them. They're crazy. But everything on the right, I accept because that's at least as plausible as where I've drawn that line. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that demarcation line a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's a very important concept, I think, when you want to talk to somebody because people often think you know, if someone identifies or you identify them as a particular type of conspiracy theorist, you tend to have this mental picture of what they believe. Mm -hmm. But within any individual conspiracy theory, there's actually quite a wide variety of different beliefs. Like if someone is, say, a 9-11 truther, like they believe that the government was behind 9-11, there are some people who think that uh, the government just simply aided the hijackers Mm -hmm. and planned the thing with the aid of agents in those countries. There are some people who think that the planes were flown by remote control and there were explosives uh, pre-planted in the buildings to bring that down. And then there are people who think that the whole thing was holograms or faked footage and it didn't even happen. Or laser beams from space or something like that. (laughs) So when you're talking to someone and you want to try to help them 
it's very important to figure out what they actually believe and how extreme their beliefs are. Because you could start talking to them about these mundane aspects of the 9-11 conspiracy theory, like, you know, why did this guy get a visa or something like that? When mm -hmm. they're actually talking about laser beams from space, it's mm -hmm. kind of irrelevant. Or vice versa, you start trying saying, oh, it's ridiculous that the buildings were blown up by explosives. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that. Why are you saying that? Mm -hmm. So... Understanding exactly where they draw the line is important for that reason, just being able to communicate with people. But it's also important for you to focus on the beliefs that are close to that line. Right. Because if they believe something that's very similar to something that they don't believe, mm -hmm. you can then ask, why do you believe this, but you don't believe this? Right. Or and, maybe you find that a source that they respect straddles that line on both sides and say, okay, well, yeah. why do you believe them on this part of the claim, but you would refute them on this one? Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good thing because like a, a lot of them use these, these sources as being authoritative or, or they have, a, say, a video that they've watched, like Loose Change or something mm -hmm. like that, or a Plandemic now, something oh, like that yeah. in there, yeah. that makes a bunch of, of claims. And if they find out that some of the claims are true and some of the claims are wrong, then you know, why are they trusting this particular video? So if you can see stuff within that region, within this, this boundary between things they believe and things they don't believe, and your goal here is kind of to get them to this situation I was talking about earlier, this plateau that they, they get to at some point where they have permission to question things for themselves. And you do that by getting them to see that something that they thought was true isn't true. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you've got to move their line a little bit. So you've got to know what their line is. So you can do this in kind of two ways. You can do it by in one way, pointing at things that are on the other side of the line, things that they don't believe and asking them why they don't believe that. And that's essentially kind of getting them to debunk something that they don't believe mm -hmm. so they can explain why they don't believe it. And so they, they would actually, might actually end up looking up these debunking resources and seeing that there is these debunking resources. Right. Start to model the exact behavior yeah. that will move their yeah. line and in the then, other direction. Then you can say, well, can you apply this, this way of thinking, this research? I mean, you, you wouldn't say it exactly like that, but you would lead them towards the, the, the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, if they can look up the reasons why this is false, can they also look up the reasons why this more plausible thing mm -hmm. is false and you can uh, then quite often they will become aware of something that they just simply didn't know even existed before which is these debunking resources these fact checking resources mm -hmm. that they've just completely ignored or often didn't even know existed this is something that really surprised me yeah is that yeah. a lot of these people like didn't even know that there were such things as debunking sites hmm. Uh, like 9-11 people, they didn't know that you know 9-11 myths or whatever existed. And the chemtrail people didn't know that contrail science existed. And other people were, were not aware of Metabunk or they didn't know, you know, they'd maybe heard of Snopes, but they wouldn't have heard of like Fact Check or something like that. Yeah, they just needed to be introduced to it. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's them just getting past this mental block, allowing them the permission, the mental permission to actually look into these things, these explanations and uh, focusing around this line where they are, they have some mental flexibility. Yeah. Like if you say, well, you know, JFK probably wasn't assassinated, or it probably was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, they'll just look at you as if you're completely insane <laughs> because that's such a foundational belief. That's mm. so far down at the bottom of their conspiracy spectrum uh, that, you know, that there's no point discussing that particular conspiracy theory with them. But the issue of, say, whether a plane flew into the Pentagon or not 
mm. or whether these barrels represent uh, you know, spraying things. These are things that exist on the cusp of belief for them. And it's relatively easy to, if you can maintain good communication with them, mm -hmm. to get them to move their line uh, to the other side of that belief. Fantastic. And again, I'll just keep hyping the book in Escaping the Rabbit Hole. You provide a lot of the specifics on these particular talking points, the most common ones when it comes to chemtrails to 9-11 truth beliefs to flat earth. So you get it not only an understanding of what people are saying about those, but also some of these uh, top resources you can point them to and some of the, the, the ways that we know that some of those things have been truly debunked. Sure. And you know, a real simple thing that people maybe don't pay enough attention to is just Googling. Yeah. If you want to find the answer to a question like, uh, what are these barrels in this chemtrail plane? Just type in, what are barrels in chemtrail plane into Google and maybe do a Google image search and the answers will you know, pop up before your eyes. Then you and might find a Mick West article about you, uh, you ballast will, barrels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I didn't know before was the, the difference between the exhaust contrails and aerodynamic contrails, mm -hmm. uh, which explains so many of these outliers in the chemtrail world. Uh, that was really helpful from the book. Yeah, there's uh, lots of videos that people say are chemtrails and they think they're spraying because they can see the trail coming from the wing, like it comes from the, the edges of the wing and it kind of looks a bit like a crop duster. But it's just a thing called an aerodynamic contrail where the, the, the drop in pressure above the wing creates a contrail in the same way you see them behind uh, Formula One cars sometimes mm -hmm. or NASCARs. You see hmm. them on the spoilers at the back, your little contrails, especially in, in uh, wetter weather. Okay, well, considering all of this, what does the future look like for debunking, for conspiracy theories and claims online? Should we give up all hope? Is it going to become impossible with deep fake videos and bots that can generate falsities faster than we can address them? Well, I think it's going to be something of an arms race uh, with fake stuff coming up and methods for detecting fake stuff and preventing it from spreading mm -hmm. or debunking it or, and flagging it. I think you know, something happened similarly with, uh, say, Photoshop and people were able to edit photographs and now people know not to trust a photograph. Mm -hmm. And increasingly they will know not to trust video and not to trust audio and things like that and uh, even more complicated things. And it's, it's partly a question of educating people that these things are going on, these deep fakes exist and that there's AI running around the internet spreading misinformation and you know perhaps even chatting with you on, on Twitter or, or whatever. And then there's going to be... I think a technological uh, approach to it where uh, social media will, you know, they, de they don't want disinformation being spread on their platforms. And so mm -hmm. they're going to do a lot of work cracking down on, on that type of thing and developing AI to, to find it and, and quash it. So it's going to be a, an arms race and it's going to be an education challenge and it's going to be something that changes and will be in constant flux, I think, for, for the foreseeable future because uh, AI is coming down the road and uh, it won't be that long before we have very sophisticated AI uh, that we have to deal with that is um, seemingly as intelligent as humans in terms of having right. conversations with it online. Right. And that's going to be a very interesting challenge for people to deal with in the next uh, 5, 10, 20 years. It'll be a big challenge, but it sounds like you're up to it and we should all join the fray. We'll see.
Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mick, for coming on. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the work that you do without any shill bucks, all out of the goodness of your heart, just because you find these topics interesting and you enjoy going down the rabbit hole, but you're able to come back out regularly and reliably. Yeah. Again, uh, everybody can get a copy of Escaping the Rabbit Hole. It's a fantastic book. And especially if you have someone in your life uh, that you've been having difficulty keeping open lines of communication with, it'll give you a lot of great encouragement and resources. Also, your podcast, Tales from the Rabbit Hole, another good way to keep up. Any any way else that people should be following you online? Uh, I'm quite active on Twitter. If you want to follow my UFO uh, work, you can find me on Twitter at Mick West. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mick. Uh, what a great conversation. And Thank you. I feel like I could, I could ask you stuff forever, but um, really appreciated your book and uh, really appreciate everything you do with Metabunk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate what you and, you and Carrie do with, uh, with your work. It's uh, great stuff. Excellent. Thanks so much. And uh, hopefully talk soon, maybe in Indeed. person next time. All right. Well, thank you again to Mick West. And that's it for this show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support what we do at MaximumFun.org slash join. That's how you become part of the Maximum Fun family. Hopefully you enjoy some of the other great shows on the network as well. You can also support us by leaving a Jumbotron at MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's a fun way to get a message on the show. You can also support us by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show, as long as they allow you to leave reviews. If not... Tell a friend, play an episode for somebody, recommend it, you know, get the word out. Thank you to everyone who supports us, and thank you all for listening. We can't tell you how much we appreciate that. And remember... And remember, give it time. This thing doesn't doesn't work immediately. If you've got a friend who's down the rabbit hole, you're not going to get them out straight away. Uh, maintain effective communication, supply them useful information, but recognize it's not going to be uh, this day or this week, but they will eventually get out of the rabbit hole. Everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor, and I'm a medical enthusiast, and we create okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week, I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately, we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday. Right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Hey, Jay Keith. Hey, Helen. Hey, you've got another true-false quiz for me? Yep. Our trivia podcast, Go Fact Yourself, used to be in front of a live audience. True. Turns out that's not so safe anymore. Correct. Next. Unfortunately, this means we can no longer record the show. False. The show still comes out every first and third Friday of the month. Correct. Finally, we still have great celebrity guests answering trivia about things they love on every episode of Go Fact Yourself. Definitely true. And for bonus points, name some of them. Recently, we've had uh, Ophira Eisenberg, plus tons of surprise experts like Yardley Smith and Suzanne Summers. Perfect score. You can hear Go Fact Yourself every first and third Friday of the month with all the great guests and trivia that we've always had. And if you don't listen, well, then you can go fact yourself. That's the name of our podcast. Correct. Woo! MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.